This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Good afternoon. I'm Henry Jenkins, uh, the co-director of the Comparative Media Studies Program, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's talk as part of our ongoing CMS Colloquium series. Today we're featuring uh, Gregory Anderson, uh, who's a writer, producer, distributor, and president of Tri-Destined Films. He's been called part of the new Oscar Micheaux movement, a trailblazer in independent film distribution. Gregory created Stomp the Yard, one of the most profitable dance films of all times, and produced, marketed, and theatrical distributed the independent film Trois, uh, one of the f f top five, 50 highest grossing independent films of its release year, according to Daily Variety. And he uh, was nice enough to offer to come out here and share his perspectives on the current independent film scene with, with us here at MIT. So let me turn it over to Gregory. Thank you, thank you. I'm going to stand back here because I have some notes. First of all, how are you all doing today? Hello, hello, hello. Well, I'm going to wait to play that a little bit later. So. Uh, First of all, there are some quotes uh, that truly summarize precisely what drives the independent film world today. Independent film is alive and well as long as we have independence in this country and in the world, as long as we have the human spirit, as long as we have visual storytelling, we will still have independence. And here's the thing that is going on in the industry right now that I'm experiencing and that I kind of want to share with you guys. There is obviously an enormous shift, if you will, in the way that films are being marketed, the way that films are being promoted. And I have gone through a lot of things in this process of, of making films. I want to kind of give you an example before I show you one brief visual. Uh, just three days ago, I was uh, hired to write a screenplay for this film, Run Baby Run, which is based on a novel on the life of, of Nikki Cruz, who was uh, the gang leader of, of the Mau Mau's, which was uh, a treacherous gang in, in the 60s in New York. And he changed his life and became one of the biggest spiritual leaders in the world. Well, like I said, three days ago, I was hired to write the screenplay. And I go in after I've signed my contract, and it's two days ago, and I walk in, and they already have the poster. And they already have begun marketing the film. And, and they already had from the mind behind Stomp the Yard. And I began to realize you know, what is happening you know, to our industry right now. And what, I'm gonna, what we're going to see right now is going to be a visual that kind of tells you a little bit about my career, how I got involved in the independent world, how I became an independent distributor, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about that from a personal level. Gregory Anderson, producer, writer, executive. While studying at Harvard University, Gregory independently produced and theatrically distributed a film with his Florida A&M University classmates called Twa, which landed them at the number 34 spot of the top 500 film distributors of 2000 listed by The Hollywood Reporter, and resulted in the picture being in the top 50 highest grossing independent films of that year, according to The Daily Variety. Soon after that release, he wrote, co-produced, and distributed 
Pandora's Box. The independent theatrical distribution of the Master P film Lockdown followed. After being one of the producers of the Sony Pictures Entertainment release Motives, starring Vivica A. Fox, Gregory's work as a writer and producer was then showcased in the Columbia TriStar release Twa the Escort. He is currently the writer and associate producer of Compton Christmas Trees, being produced by Gotham Entertainment, the producers of the MTV Paramount film Martin Lawrence Live, Run Tell That, and is also the writer of the upcoming Sony Pictures Entertainment Sony Screen Gems project, Stephen, starring hip-hop R&B sensation Chris Brown and Neo, along with Megan Good. Gregory started an independent experimental showcase in the spring of 2006, producing the indie films Soul to Go, The Caretaker, and Running Hearts. As the president and co-owner of Tridestin Films with partners Indy Brown and Trey Haley, Gregory was one of the writers of The Comedy Kids, a stand-up comedy project featuring child stars from Nickelodeon, Disney, ABC Family, Fox Kids, and several hit films including Daddy Daycare and Bench Wars. Some notable projects include Saturday. In this project, Chris Tucker's brother, Dexter Tucker, makes his film debut with rappers Paul Wall and Pimp C, and this off-the-wall comedy that takes place in Atlanta, Georgia, and ends in a scavenger hunt of mammoth proportions. Foolishly in Love, a biopic about the dangerous love affair between NFL football legend Andre Rising and Lisa Left Eye Lopez of the single biggest-selling female group since The Supremes, TLC. The true life story of Beverly Kearney, the world-renowned track coach from the University of Texas. The day after Christmas in 2002, Beth Kearney suffered back and spinal cord injury in a horrific car accident that left her in a wheelchair without the use of her legs. But if you feel bad for Kearney, don't. She doesn't. Not only has she gained strength from within, but from a wonderful family of young ladies. And Beth Kearney is recovering quite nicely, one step at a time. They're the, they're the example of following. A return to glory for the Lady Longhorns, Texas wins the 2005 Outdoor National Championship. Tridestin Films is also in development with Oscar award-winning producer Michael Phillips on an urban remake of his hit film, The Flamingo Kid. Tridestin Studios, in conjunction with executive producer Andrea Wiley, recently finished a pilot for the TV show Walking in the Light. Hosted by NBA legend Magic Johnson's wife, Cookie Johnson, and Oscar winner Denzel Washington's wife, Pauletta Washington. Through it all, Anderson stays involved in community service projects like the Inner City Destiny Awards and public service announcements for Hurricane Katrina victims. Hi, I'm Vivica Fox. Hi, I'm Nia Long. And I see my grandmother, I see my cousins, I see all my people. You're now faced with motherless children, fatherless children. Players, pimps, we showboating all this time. It's time to put up. It's time to show who we really made up. Gregory Anderson, producer, writer, executive. So now back in the old days of the studio system, as you all know, the brand of a Hollywood studio meant something to the public. Each studio had its own moniker. It had its own stars, it had its own vehicles, and it meant something when you went to the theater. You had MGM with 
the musicals, romantic comedies. You had Paramount with the historical epics. You had Ron Warner Brothers with their gangster dramas, Universal with the scary movies and the horror films, Disney with the cartoons. But today, those studios really don't mean the same thing to an audience. But it does still mean something to the actual multiplexes and the persons that own the theaters that show the films. There becomes the issue for the independent filmmaker. It is one thing to be brave enough to make your own independent film. It's another thing to be brave enough to actually go out and distribute that independent film yourself. Now, about, let's say, four or five years ago, arguably you had six to 10 true blue studios. These were financial entities in the industry that were actually capable of freely greenlighting a film on their own, not having to go to anybody. These are many majors, some you know above or below. But now you have a plethora, in, all, in like five short years, a plethora of corporate structured greenlighters that are basically following the Hollywood trend which is further dissolving the world of the independent filmmaker. Now, I want to just name out all these companies to you just to show you how far things have changed and just to show you how the shift changed for me in terms of us making our movies, us then trying to fight against the system and have to make them outside of the system, us trying to make them with a studio and a co-venture and what actually happened because of that. These companies are as follows. Disney, Fox, Fox 2000, Fox Atomic, New Regency, Lionsgate, Mandate, MGM, New Line, Overture, Paramount, Paramount Vantage, DreamWorks, Sony, Screen Gems, Universal, Spyglass, Rogue, Warner Brothers, WIP, The Weinstein Company, Dimension, Summit, CBS Films, The Film Department, United Artists, Inferno, Fox Searchlight, Walden, Participant, Alcon, Green Street, Our Stories, Miramax, Senator, Bold Films, Hyde Park, Level One, Gold Shore, Lakeshore, Morgan Creek, Radar, and Millennium. Now, some of these companies you may remember were production entities or production houses, but now they have become green lighting studios. A lot of these at one time were houses that mainly helped and supported independent filmmakers. Now they have become a part of the studio system. So with this many Hollywood corporate titans, you have to ask yourself, how does the independent filmmaker survive? Or how does the independent producer survive or independent distributor survive that is putting this product, these work of arts, out to the world? Well, some people feel like they don't survive. Some people feel like they have become part of the greater mechanism of the Hollywood system. Others have chimed in that the best way that you can describe independence of today is that you have made this institutionalization. Indies now form an industry that runs parallel to Hollywood, but basically is under Hollywood's domain. Now I'm going to take you on the story of my career and kind of show you kind of how that took place and how I can see that happening. I went to a school in Florida. The name of the school is Florida A&M University. I went there in undergrad. 
And at FAMU, it's a historically black college uh, in Tallahassee, Florida. It's kind of like the sister school to Florida State, a uh, relatively small school. We didn't have a film school, didn't have a film program. Uh, I studied agricultural business. I minored in theater. I always wanted to, you know, be in film, be in theater. So Apostle was like, well, that's cool. You, you're going to, you know, you're going to be in this because you're going to get this degree, but you can minor in, in, in whatever. And while we were in school, we wanted to make movies. It was five of my friends. We sat down and said, we want to make movies. And we all were kind of in the very same situation. We had electrical engineers, a mechanical engineer, agricultural business, a CIS, computer information technology person, and we had a business administration person. So none of us were, well, obviously studying film because we didn't have a film school, but none of us had a background, but we knew we had a love and a compassion for making movies. So we started a cinema club at our school as a way to help build and foster our careers. We studied two books. One was Empire of Their Own, which is, of course, the story of how Jewish immigrants basically invented what we see as Hollywood today. The other was the works of Oscar Michaud, who, of course, uh, the Producers Guild has called one of the most prolific producers of all time, producing some 45 to 50 movies and independently distributing them on his own. So we began to study those, those two worlds because what we saw in those, two, in those two filmmakers were these two minorities, Jewish immigrants and an African-American man who are in the early 1900s are going on this brand new frontier, which was new to everybody, even people with money. And they found a way to build a structure for themselves and help build a dynasty. Now, a lot of people, have forgotten some of those early heroes because Hollywood's become this big splash and pizzazz. But we thought if we could study what they did and somehow emulate that in a way, we could create a way for ourselves, even if we did not have the quote unquote usual pedigree that goes along with a person that quote unquote makes it in the industry. So what we first did was created a film called Chocolate City. Now, at that very same time, I had written a script called The Rush. Now, The Rush will inevitably become Stomp the Yard, but we'll get back to that later. So I'd written The Rush. We thought it was a, a little bit too big for us at that time to make. It was a story about the fraternity sorority experience on a historically black campus. So we decided to do a smaller film called Chocolate City. We shot this film for $12,000. And we shot it on Super 16, shot it around the campus. And we had the film and thought, OK, what do we do next? So we began to call agencies, CAA, William Morris, you know, doing the whole thing that you've heard people do. Of course, it didn't work. Then we decided to connect with some of the foundations using some six degrees of separation. And we were able to get into one of the filmmaker foundation showcases at CAA. We showed the film there. And from there, we sold it to a company named Sinequanon. Now, Cinequanon International was a relatively big video company in the latter 90s. Now they're kind of doing more international things. They're a little bit more defunct in America. But at that time, and from let's say from 97 to at least 90, 99, or 95 to 99, they were you know, what you would see as one of the top video industry companies. So for us, a bunch of students who basically raised you know, this money on our own and then you know, sold it for that amount, we thought, hey, we've, we've done something big. So when we come out to our senior year, 
we decided we're gonna try to make another film. So our thought is, you know, made one for 12, sold it for 200, let's try to make one for 200 and, and double that. So we began to raise money and we got 50 investors. These investors were all blue collar workers. They had never invested in anything like this in their lives. They were using money from their WIC checks. They were investing money from everything that you can, you can think of. You know, they would have done food stamps too, to be quite honest with you. These were our aunts, uncles, our relatives, uh, people that we knew from the church, things of that nature. So we, we made the film and we kept thinking before we made the film, we need to figure out a way to make a movie that is artistically credible to what we want to say to the world, but at the very same time, we realized at a low budget, we needed to find something that was going to also be marketable and different. So we talked about a lot of different stories that we wanted to tell. And one of my classmates wanted to talk about sexuality from the perspective of minorities, because you don't get a chance to really see that. And so we thought, hey, a lot of the films that I liked was like Belle du Jour, Last Tango in Paris. I said, what if we take that, that motif, put it into an urban environment, what could that look like? And so we decided to make a film called Trois, which was about a married couple who engages in a menage a trois, and how that begins to slowly unravel and dissipate their marriage, and what does it do to them in terms of, of putting that into their relationship. So, of course, that kind of went in contrast to my aunts and uncles and the people in the church who were giving us the money. But they said, okay, I'm going to wear a veil when I come to see it. So we, we, uh, we finished the film, and we were really excited. And we took it out to Hollywood and showed it around, and people said, wow, this is it's a great movie. Got great actors in it and, you know, beautiful people and all the things you want to hear. But you know what? This is not going to work. This is uh, a little different, you know, and we thought, well, wait a minute, it, it is edgy, but, you know, we have one version that's obviously edgier than another one. One was just as edgy as a fatal attraction, so what was making this so edgy in comparison? Well, we won't say what that was, but in the end of the day, the uh, studios passed. So we spent the next year and a half looking at this movie sitting in Jonesboro, Georgia, outside of Atlanta, wondering what the are we about to do with everybody's money? Because people are starting to call now and saying, you know, I'm on workers' comp, what are you gonna do? You know, I need, you know, I need you to help me, you know? And what we began to do that year was, we said, wait a minute, let's go back to what we learned in the club. What did we learn from the books, Empire of Their Own? What did we learn from Oscar Michaud. These people were going through horrific things in their lives. They were just coming to America, or they had been in America two generations and they came from slaves, or whatever they were coming from. They were coming out of the Holocaust and all these things. What did they do that allowed them to push forward and make this happen? What can we do in this situation? And so we said, let's go back to what, what they did. They were salesmen and saleswomen. They went out and said, we don't need a studio because there was no studio. We're going to set this up in a venue, we're going to present it to the world, and we're going to 
showcased our film. And then, of course, then the word studio came to be. But before that, there was no studio. So we said, let's backtrack and let's do the same thing. Let's first build ourselves some hype for ourselves. So we began to call colleges all across the country. And we began to send screeners out for them to have classes and talk about you know, sexual relationships and what does that mean and, and in terms of film. And, and we did radio shows. And for about six months, where we were still trying to convince the studios to buy it, we began to build these articles that basically spoke to what the film was about, to say, listen, people are talking. People are talking. People are talking. At the end of about six months, we finally figured out, OK, this worked, but the studios are still saying no. So we went to a film festival in Acapulco. And at that film festival, BET was there, MTV, a couple of companies like that. And we got an offer to sell the movie for $10,000. Now, at this point, it had been about a year and a half. And we just felt like, what are we going to do with this film? But we said, we can't give this film up. Not yet. Not yet. So we didn't take that offer, which of course was a horrible offer. And the very next day, we met with Bernard Bronner. Now, Bernard Bronner, if you look him up, his father was one of the pioneers of like the hair care products, which were really big in beauty salons and all those kind of things. And he wanted to kind of get into the industry, but he didn't want to make movies, but he wanted to kind of help market them. And we began to talk to him about how his father sold his hair care products to the community. And we said, wait a minute. We could use some of that right there. How he got his stuff out around the world and became you know, a millionaire in basically a, a year and a half. Then we began to talk to my parents, who were big fans of Motown and Elvis. And they talked about the reviews of how they would go city to city and market and promote their movies. So we took a little bit of that. And what we created was a cinematic Motown review, which we called it. And we began to go city to city buzzing about the movie. Not showing it yet, not forewalling it, but I thought was we're going to get distributors to hear about this movie buzzing in their community and get them to want to talk. And it actually worked. Carmike Theaters, which is a, a theater that's a really big theater chain in the Bible Belt area. We met with one of the sons. The, the theater's um, named after Carl and Mike. And we met with Carl in Smyrna, Georgia. And he came down and he said, you know what? I really like this buzz that you guys have going. I'm going to put you in my second and third run theaters in a few cities. Let's see how you do for a week. You do good on this weekend for that week. Let's see what we'll do. Now, second and third run theaters, obviously, are the theaters that have been there probably since like the 70s or 80s, the ones that Nobody really goes to anymore. People now go to the Carmike multiplexes. So these are the ones that have like five screens of, or three screens. But for us, that worked perfectly. So now at this point, the club that initially started out with five, that then had expanded into like 35, 40 people, had now decreased to four people. So the four of us, along with some marketing money from Mr. Bronner, which was about $20,000, which then took the whole budget up to the film about, let's say, 200. It was like 175 to make it. So about 200 by the set, all said and done. 
we, we took the film to 20 cities, 22 screens. The four of us had to do every single aspect of marketing a movie. Now, when you hear about a film like Blair Witch, independent film, but it was distributed, as you know, by Artisan. Artisan used to be live entertainment that did Quentin Tarantino's first film that then became Artisan that was then bought. And now, you know, it is basically, you know, a studio. It, so it was not an independent distribution vehicle. It's now Lionsgate. So what we were doing was different than that. We had to actually be Lionsgate. We had to actually be Disney. So everything from each city, we split the cities up into four parts. We had to do the radio promotions. We had to do the TV ads. We had to help book the theaters. We then had to do the street teams. We had to put the ads into the newspaper. We had to make the ads to put in, make the commercials. Every single aspect of distributing a movie, we had to do. And it was difficult in the, the main process that made it the hardest was the trusting of putting your time and the little money we had out into the world. For instance, the street teams, which we put a lot of faith in because we figured we could get them for cheap. They could put the stuff up and you know snipe around town the different posters. Well, we had to have our friends and classmates who had graduated who lived in those different cities tell us what was going on because some of the street teams would take your money and would throw the posters away and wouldn't do the job. So we went through a lot of these different journeys, driving you know, in the van with the posters plastered on it. And it um, was quite an experience. But needless to say, after about three and a half months, that $200,000 movie had made $1.7 million at the box office, which was a beautiful thing because there was no middleman. So those investors who you know, had never done this before were able to see a great profit for what they had put into it. And our company that year beat out several of the top distributors, like your USA Films, you know, all the really big film, Palm Pictures, pictures that were you know, studios at that time that were relatively big in 2001. And then, of course, once the film started reaching over 2 million and going in further than that, then Sony, of course, came along. And they said, hey, we want to buy the movie. And so we said, no, 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 hold on. Let's wait a minute. So we're going to license this to you because we want to keep the library because what we realized from Empire of Their Own is you can't have your own unless you own it. And we was the first thing they said in the book. So we had to make sure we had our own. So from that film, that film began to spawn sequels. Now, the studio wanted to own those sequels, and they would have given us more money to make them. We said no. We'll let them be negative pickups. We'll let them be minimum guarantees, which basically means the studio gives you a letter that basically says, hey, we're going to entrust you to make this film for X amount of dollars. You're going to get the film bonded through film finances or one of the bond companies if they so agree. And if you bring this, pro this project back, we will then pay the guarantor for doing that. So that meant the budgets could have ended up being, the very next movie could have been a $5 million movie, but because we wanted to do a negative pickup, it was only a $750,000 movie. But it was our $750,000 movie that we were able to see 
more money on. And what I tell people to this day is, Stomp the Yard, which has made over $100 million, I made more money on those independent films than that one particular film that we're going to get to once we start talking about Stomp the Yard. But from, but from that movie, we went on to make Pandora's Box, Twilight the Escort, several independent films. And it was great because we were able to still distribute the films on our own, and then they would go through a DVD process within the studio system. We got so good at this that studios began to hire us strictly to do distribution in order to raise their DVD sales. So one film was like Lockdown, which I think they showed up here, which was a Master P video, um, like music video type thing he did, which was, a, it was in the end of the day was a movie, but like a long music video. But they wanted it to do good on DVD. Well, to boost the DVD sales, you want to put it in theaters for at least a couple of weekends. So we were hired, you go, go out there and do what you all do. Here's the money. Began to do that for a while. And then we started coming up into the last three years. And all of a sudden, something began to change. It began to get harder to get the buyers to book the films. And we were like, what's going on? And we started looking around, and all of those production companies or production entities that were pushing independent films started becoming more studio-like. Now, we obviously got to remember that you know, 15 years ago, and it kind of clicked for us, 15 years ago, Miramax, which in theory was the king of independence, was sold for $70 million to Walt Disney, the king of commercial studio movies. So of course there was this shift. So you have 15 years where there's been no real guiding force, no real strong structure or powerhouse to help keep the independent films from going all over the place. So we began to feel this, this, the brunt of this hit. Around that same time, a film Drumline, which some of you may have heard of or seen, and the film Bring It On, those films became really, really successful for, for studios. And so we got a call and said from, from Sony, they basically said, you know, do you all have something in these genres of Bring It On, of Drumline? And one of my classmates talked about a script that I wrote called The Rush that we wanted to do in undergrad, but we obviously didn't have you know, the money or anything to, you know, to do it at that time. And so that film inevitably became Stomp the Yard. That was our first fully controlled studio movie. And at that point, I began to realize what was happening to the world of independence. I looked around at a lot of the independent filmmakers that I knew of, and they were now either directing TV shows, they were producing you know, music videos, they were doing some of them action movies, even though they may be action movies with some more meat than usual. And I began to say, well, wait a minute, what's happening to, to this whole industry? And we said, well, wait a minute, a couple of my friends said, we got to go back and we need to find out how can we regain that power back again that we seem to have lost somewhere. Because we tried to, after, after Stomp the Yard and the success from that, take the money from that and now go make a, a film. 
which we could have done, but we realized our booker was like, Greg, I'm telling you, it's going to be so hard. He said, it was, it was harder, it was easier when you had no money. The system has changed so much that you have that, all the studios I named out to you. Think about it. A lot of those were just entities within a studio. Now they can greenlight a movie and make a film. Now MTV, who used to be under Paramount, can now either greenlight it, make their own movie, or they can let Paramount finance it for them. Paramount Vantage and Fox Atomic, they don't have to go to the boss anymore. So now you have all those people converging, you know, on the world, on the theaters, on the DVD, you know, on all the ancillary rights. And so there's no place really for the independent filmmakers. So people began to try to create new ideas. Uh, obviously, Magnolia Pictures, uh, Steven Soderbergh, with, they tried with Bubble, where they did the day and date, where they did, you know, DVD release and theatrical and all those things in one. And uh, had minimal success. I mean, the movie only made like $140,000. Uh, so I guess that's below minimal, but I mean, any paradigm shift, you know, takes some time. Uh, and then, you know, people tried other things, like people started going, connecting with Netflix. That was another big thing that we thought about doing, and a couple of companies have tried it, where they'll take an independent film. Um, I think one was called, I can't even think of the name of it right now. I have the name written down. But anyway, there's uh, a film that went to Sundance maybe like two years ago. And... It only made $200,000 in the theaters, but Netflix put out flyers to their next Netflix subscribers. And within like the first three days of those flyers being out, 100,000 people subscribed to get that DVD. So in theory, that DVD would have made over a million dollars the opening weekend had those same people gone to the movie theater. So what we thought with our company was, we have to figure out a different way to make this work. So what we devised was what we call pop culture integration. And what pop culture integration virtually is, is where we take things that are important to pop culture, and instead of letting it take us over, we bring the art house into the pop culture world. So we shift it instead of it shifting us. We saw our friends changing and said, well, wait a minute. We don't have to do that. We can, we can change the environment. Why can't we be the people that shift it? Why can't we be the weather providers versus somebody else? So the, our first attack was the music world. And we knew the music world is hurting very bad. And we said, how can we get the music world to pay for our art house movie? We went first to Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers Records and Asylum Records. And the pitch was this. We said, hey, downloading, file sharing, MySpace, YouTube, blah, 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 Facebook is, all of this stuff is, is screwing up your business. You can't sell any records anymore. People don't connect with the artists anymore. You know, how many times can you see booty shaking on a video? And I mean, it's, what's going to happen next? I mean, it's, it's, it's not working. You're not selling your material anymore, and it's hurting your audience, and your artists aren't being developed into the future, you know, Aretha Franklin's, Elvis Presley's, and all these people of the world. They're just here and gone tomorrow. So we said, if video killed the radio star, we're going to kill the video star. We went down, sat down with the presidents of Warner Brothers Records, who at that time had just left 
Def Jam, Larry Cohen, and his executives, and we gave them a pitch. We said, we're going to take the soundtrack, and we're going to work it in reverse. So where soundtracks are typically the accent to a movie, we are going to make the movie the accent to the artist's CD. Therefore, instead of you making these music videos, give us the money, we're going to make a movie that will go in correlation with your artist's album, CD, EP. And at the same time, you can take elements from this and utilize it in music videos. The first one that they tested us on was Mike Jones, which was a little difficult because we thought we were going to get one of their more, um, one of them more artists that would be a little bit more artistic toward uh, storytelling, or somebody that was going to be one of their more like folk artists that we could kind of put our world into. And they said, okay, well, if you want to do this, we're going to give you a hardcore, thugged out, gangster rapper, let's see what the, you do. So we did American Dream. Um, I think, let me see if it's next. I don't know if it's next, but um, I want to play it for you guys. Uh, let's say push play. What may come up next, I think, is, you know, we can forward, let's forward through this part if you can. And I'll keep talking. These are, we're going to forward through. These, these are some of my movies, by the way. This is Twa. We're going to get to Mike Jones in a minute. But so uh, it was quite an experience. It was an experience I, I, none of us were, were quite ready for uh, because obviously the artist was kind of juxtaposed with what we wanted. So we had to spend about a month and a half to two months. We just had to hold the movie off. And I just said, let me go down here and let me just kind of, that's, that's the escort, that's motives, some of the other movies. That's Stomp the Yard, obviously. And it should be next after this. But, uh, See like when we get to it, I'll okay. This is it. All right. Is it working? Uh, no, that's weird. Okay, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll keep going. We'll keep going. But we'll try to figure it out. Let, let's keep forwarding while I'm talking, and let's see if we can get to it. So. Uh, Anyway, it was a crazy experience because I realized I went down to visit first. And of course, it's all the bling bling and the, all kinds of you know, Lamborghinis and all the cars and Rolls Royces, 10 of them, and all the houses, gold, everything is gold, teeth, everything's gold. So I was like, this is going to be a little weird. So I went back to one of us and I said, let's just hold the movie off for a second. Give me like two months. I'm going to basically go there and basically stay with him, stay with their, their crew. Let's talk about what their world is, what they want to say. And let's find a way that we can artistically tell this story so that we won't be clashing. But first, I have to kind of merge my ideas with theirs and be able to funnel that. Because if you're, if you're an artist, 
the truth about artistry is, is, at least is what I was told, is you can take anything that you're given, and if you're an artist, you can shift it into something. You can make art. Somebody can give you an artist some clay, and they can take that clay and, and create something. They can take two colors of paint, instead of having the whole barrage of kaleidoscope of paint, and they can make a beautiful painting. So I thought, let me do the very same thing. Let me take something that is different and less molded into something. And what we came up with was American Dream. Hopefully it'll play. And I don't know. Okay. Time don't stand on nobody's side. You understand? Time don't wait for no man. You gotta start thinking about a better way. Joan is your giving me. See it over and over. When you sell these drugs, Mike, you selling a piece of your soul, man. You have so much potential, but you don't end up like the rest of these fools out here out of jail or in jail. How you gonna judge me? A lot of hustlers can't get out of the game without getting scarred. You gotta sacrifice your favorite player in order to win something. You can forward it. Forward through that part to the next one. Yeah, keep forward. So what ended up happening was we uh we found a lot about his story, and, and what he hadn't really told anybody was his story about his grandmother, and basically how his grandmother was this really, you know, Bible-based, fire and brimstone Christian woman, and she wanted him off the streets, and she liked the fact that he was in music because the music would keep him out of, you know, the gangster lifestyle. Well, he didn't know how to sell his music without being on the streets, so she said, I'm going to tell you how to get your music out to the world. Now, this is this really Bible Belt woman. She told him to basically make CDs and take them to strip clubs. And basically, this is a place where they don't, they're not going to care about your music. If they hate your music, they're going to stay because they're not there for your music. But if they love your music, it's great. And she was like, make songs for each of the different strippers to strip to. And he did this. It caught on, and it went from city to city to city to city, and the studio execs and record execs in different cities heard this guy saying Mike Jones, Mike Jones, with his telephone number. His, his grandmother's phone number had to be on all of the things. She said, when you rap, put our home phone number in the rap. Put our home address in the rap. So they're going to be able to get to you somehow. And sure enough, that's how he got his record deal. Now, the movie he was going to make at first was going to be about him shooting people up and blasting and killing and all this. Nothing about the grandma, nothing about that. But by being there, I realized, let's shift the focus. Let's shift it to your real world. You know what I mean? There's something in that story. Well, when Warner Brothers released it, they first um, premiered on MTV and BET. Now, two weeks before his album came out, you know, as you know, DVDs and CDs aren't selling good nowadays. He only first sold only, you pause, you pause it right here because we're going to talk about this next. 
only sold like about 40,000 copies, which, you know, it's not, it's not good. I mean, you know, just honestly. So then two weeks later, this comes out. And then that very next week, it shoots from the 40 to an additional 150. So what that showed them was there was a shift in the promotion of this artist just by this one extra element. So now Warner Brothers has brought us on to do more of these projects for some of the other artists. Uh, hopefully not Paris Hilton, because she's one of them, but anyway. But who knows, I, you know, I, I can do anything, I'll try it. But um, so that worked, so that began to buzz around the industry. The next thing that we, we um, began to hit was the sport industry. And our thought was this, sports in America are huge. Sport movies are huge. How can we get the sport industry to finance our art house movie? So, because that's what it really is, it boils down to. If the investors now don't want to invest in your independent films, we're going to find other people to invest in these independent films, utilizing elements that work within their world. Well, what we decided to do was look at places like ESPN, look at uh, these big sporting entities, Let's find ways to create films that can utilize their world, that can be screened in the dormitories on campuses, can be screened through the alumni associations, can be promoted at the Olympics and all these different events. So the first one that we acquired was the Bev Kearney story. And this weekend, I'm going to the Texas Relays. And at the Texas Relays, they are going to have the athletic directors are going to be there from all of the the largest sporting institutions across the country. So all the really big sports schools are going to be there. And what we're going to be discussing is taking this film project, even before we shoot it, and finding ways to incorporate this into their structure so that this can either be a part of the school's curriculum that it can tell or teach the kids, or if this can be a way that they can use this to promote their you know, athletics and education. We're basically discussing those, those different kind of ways. Bev Kearney's story is a wonderful story. We're going to talk a little bit about it in here. We were featured on HBO Real Sports in um, last November. And uh, we talked a little bit about it on there. But uh, you can play this, and this will kind of get an idea of what we did. We created like a visual to kind of say, this is what we're going to show tomorrow, too, a visual that basically says, this is what we want to do with, with her film, with her life. After winning two straight national championships, Bev Kearney's Texas Longhorns are ranked number one going into the Outdoor Nationals, which will be contested next month in Sacramento. Kearney has also written a book on her life, which she is now shopping to publishers. A Hollywood producer has already optioned the rights to her story. Kearney was an athlete, a national champion sprinter whose talent took her to the height of her sport. Then, as a coach, she inspired other younger athletes to run as she had run, to dream as big as she had dreamed. She has coached six Olympic athletes, 27 NCAA individual champions, and her athletes have received 292 All-American honors. Now, 
in the improbable third act of her life. She's both athlete and coach, pushing her body and inspiring her team as she never has before. Texas Lady Longhorns, such an inspirational story. The day after Christmas in 2002, Beth Kearney suffered back and spinal cord injuries in a horrific car accident that left her in a wheelchair without the use of her legs. But if you feel bad for Kearney, no, she doesn't. Not only has she gained strength from within, but from a wonderful family of young ladies. And Beth Kearney is recovering quite nicely, one step at a time. The Lady Longhorns are certainly an extension of their tough-minded and resilient coach, a return to glory for the Lady Longhorns, Texas wins the 2005 Outdoor National Championship. So basically with this story, um, just to kind of give you a quick behind the scenes, uh, the day after Christmas 2002, Bev Kearney was riding with her family to uh, Disney World. She was about 10 minutes out of, out of Jacksonville. She got into a car accident, which killed her family. It threw her out of the car, and they basically said that she was going to be a vegetable, that she would not move below her neck. So at that time, the school wanted to bring on new coaches to basically replace her. But the students didn't want to do that. A lot of them had come there strictly for her. And they said, well, if her body may be gone, but her mind is here. And if her mind is still here, we want her to coach us. You know, her spirit's still here. They go to Jacksonville, and they basically tell her, if you believe in us, we believe in you coach us. She coaches them that year to the Nationals, the World Championships, and the Olympics, and they win. She does it the whole season from the hospital bed. Then the kids come back. They kick out all the psychiatrists and the doctors that told her she'll never walk again. They use her skills on her. And after three months, she stands. After six months, she walks again. That's basically the story. It's truly amazing. Against doctors' prognosis that said she never walked, she walks to this day. And so we thought, what a great story that's empowering, that you know, encompasses all these different social issues that we can explore and that we wanted to do independent and get the money from this, either the schools or from athletic sponsors. Because we got offers this year to do this movie. But they wanted to do this movie either with a rapper playing Bev Kearney. Or they wanted, now this, I mean, this is studio deals that we, we passed on. They wanted a rapper or a very popular female singer, I'm not gonna name, that was in another movie, you know. But, and then they wanted to make her a man. Yes, honestly, I'm honest, like Sam Jackson, I'm, I'm serious, they offered, they said you want Sam Jackson to be her. Then they wanted to make her a white man. So I mean, it's, they did a lot of things, this to this true story, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, it's, I mean, as bizarre as it sounds. Uh, they just thought it would be 
better marketing. So we said, no, we want to go the route that we're going now. And, uh, and so we feel really good about it. We've already had the investors that have come on board. And now once the investors came on board, now those studios are like, we're back. We'll do it the way you want to do it. But why we want to go to the athletic divisions because we want to take this one and not do it like Stomp the Yard, but do it the way we did it when we first started. Let's try to take it out ourselves into the world. And so that's what we are today. And basically what I like, you know, the challenges in every one of you all is to continue to figure out unique ways to get our art form to the public. Because that right there is, that's the, the real like lost frontier. That's the place where we could live or die in terms of artists because if we can't get the art to the people, we can't share this experience with the world, and that's why you make art. You make art so that you can converge, so that people can experience it, and they can become better, and you can become better by what they tell you about your art and what you say to them. So we have to continue to make new and unique ways, because if not, our art is going to be blocked out. So I thank you for taking your time and, and spending some time with me. And, and if you have any questions, I would love to answer those. Who, who wants to ask the first question? Hi, thanks. Um, I'd just like to hear a little bit more. I appreciate that there's a tension between wanting to make independent film but also catering a little bit to market demands and um, even your new investors, they may not be Hollywood studios, but they also have certain themes and ideas yeah. and, you know, marketable tropes that they want to see. Yeah. So as a content creator, as an artist, I'd like to hear a little bit about how you make sure that you're not entirely sacrificing your vision and the sort of issues you want to be talking about to sort of the investors that you need. Exactly. Well, I'm going to give you an example of a situation that just happened uh, that it was, probably, it was a little difficult to talk about until, until now, because it's like, what's the purpose of, of us being together if we can't share these experiences and they can make you know you better and, and me better. Uh, there was a film that we were about to do and there was a, an, a financier that I had been building a relationship with for over a year and a half. And this investor, his daughter was a part of Super Sweet 16. You ever heard of that on MTV where the rich kids have their birthday parties? Well, he, he spent $800,000 on his daughter's birthday party. So I figured if he would do that, this is somebody I can, you know, get, get to do this, you know? Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it was one of those building the relationship the whole time, us kind of connecting in terms of let's become friends first because I knew what I needed to do was, I knew if I just go at it for, for the finance, he may finance, but he's going to finance with conditions like, my daughter needs to be the star and all this kind of stuff. But if we build some kind of rapport with each other and I begin to let him see the value of leaving the power in the artist's hands, how that can, how that can be great. So we get to the point where it's Christmas of this year. It's probably like the day or two after Christmas. He calls and says, I'm down. Let's go for it. 
I'm going to do it. I'm going to put $5 million. Now, that's great because most, you know, first-time investors in, in the film world are doing like maybe a million, maybe, you know, a couple thousand. No. So let's do five, you know, let's do five million. I said, well, here's the deal. We're going to first go and get distribution before we shoot the film. One, I wanted to do that for a couple of reasons. It was his first time. I knew that it was he was going to want to have control, not of the movie, but of how the disbursements work. And I knew that's not going to work in terms of trying to make a movie and you're waiting for your drawdown to come and you're trying to have to answer to somebody every week. But if it was a distributor already in place, then the thought process is it's a more relaxed type of situation. He felt good about that. Then he brought somebody in, because this is not really his world, so he brought a, another person in to kind of work with me through the process of us getting the, the deals closed. And that's when the drama happened, because this person went and read a book, which I say nothing's wrong with reading a book, because I, I study books in order to to get in the industry. So it felt like my ghosts were haunting me in a, in, a, in, a, in a bad way because she got one of those making movies for dummies books, literally. And she began to tell me how to make movies based upon this book. And I said, well, first of all, nothing wrong with this book, no diss to the how to make movies for dummy book. But let me, if you're going to use some books, let me give you some that are more credible in terms of the whole broad structure. This is just telling you the quick beats. Let me give you something that's going to be a, a, a larger education. And then I said, and, and let me tell you, I've done now seven films you know, of different ranges, you know what I mean? You know, and, and everything from 10,000 to a movie that was 15 million. So I, I have a kind of you know, different type of experience than a lot of people who've never gone that low in terms of budgets or that, or that high. So she still wanted to follow you know, her rules of what she wanted to do. She began to go out and make offers to talent. Our contracts weren't signed yet, OK? Offers for, to, for certain prices to get people to basically put their products in the movie. One particular star, I'm not going to name, but uh, the star has a, a, a shoe line and wanted the shoe line in the movie. So basically, she made a deal with them. You know, I don't know how she did it, because it wasn't signed, but it was a, a handshake deal. So all these things are happening, you know, and even though it's not affecting the script, it's still affecting the art itself. And I felt like I got to try to get the reins of this while I still can, or I'm going to have to let it go. Well, in the end of the day, I had to decide to let it go, because I felt like it was affecting the movie, and it was a very, very tough thing to do. And my agent thought I was crazy because that you, you're going to let $5 million go. And, and I thought I was a little bit crazy up until I started talking to you guys in here because it's been on my mind for like the last, this just happened. So the letter came on Monday. So yeah, it just it's only like three or four days. So it's, 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 it was been kind of like, I had this master, you know you have this master plan in your head of how everything is going to go? And I just knew I had it right. I was like, this is going to be great. I'm going to have, I'm going to be hired to do this. And there's a movie that I'm in, in, in you know, deal with for, with Universal and then Bev Kearney and then the $5 million movie and bam, we take over the world this year. You know, that was the mindset, right? And it, it didn't work like that. So 
I had to let the movie go. And, and you know, some of my business partners, we, we had like a little, I don't say argument, but you know, what you do inside as friends, because you've known each other, you know, now since you were all 15, 16 years old, we're able to kind of box each other, so to speak, and then be okay with it. But at the end of the day, we all decided as a group it was better not to do it. And not doing it meant that we really lost this investor because, you know, this is the one he wanted to do, this particular project. But we were like, we, we can't afford it to go that way. It's one thing, like I said, to take your work and integrate, take your artistry, and you integrate it into some world. It's another thing to take the world and let it integrate into you. When you do that, it begins to change the parameters of, you know, of what you've created. And that's what was happening. You know, I felt myself giving up certain things. Because it is give and take. Now, it's a relationship. It's a marriage, and I knew that at, from the get-go. But the more deals that were being made, the more things that were kind of happening, I felt like we're going to get into this movie, and there's going to be a lot of strings and things that I have no idea about, and I'm going to play, be playing catch-up, and, and, and it could all explode in my face. So I basically watched the $5 million walk out the door uh, basically on Sunday, and then Monday the letter was official that his attorney sent over, so I saw that go bye-bye. But you know what I mean? But that's, and that would have been a movie that we owned our company versus this where I'm a gun for hire versus Universal where you know what that is. That would have been our gun for hire. But I mean, you have to, sometimes you have to make a choice. And, uh, um, and I feel better about it now. So you have to do what you have to do. Oh, she'll give it to you rather than she gets finished. Okay. Um, so. I've got a few questions, but sure. many people have questions too. So, um, could you tell us a bit more about other distribution, if you could, self-distribution and other channels, uh, or is theatrical king still for you, or do you feel? Well, you know what, here's the thing. Uh, I wanna, you know, obviously you can make a lot of money doing uh, independent DVD, and that's a whole nother ball game. Now with, with, with the DVD world, there are, of course, you know, your blockbusters and all those kind of things. But the real powerhouse is there is a company out of North Carolina. And I can't think of the name now, but I'm going to give you all my emails. I can give it to you. But this company was like, if you will, one of the first companies that began to build chains of relationships between themselves and the small mom and pop video stores in the 80s. Do you know what I mean? And so this is like the real powerhouse. Uh, of all of, of the DVD distribution world. And you have to really first integrate yourself in, into that world before you grow. Now, here's the, the, the thing about making a DVD. With the DVD film, at least today, you have a lot of commercial. You think movies are commercial? DVDs are even sometimes more commercial now, even though they really shouldn't be, because your thought is, well, it's not as expensive to actually release it you know, in a theater house. But what has happened is there's been so many low budget, well, I said low budget versus independent. There's been so many low budget movies that have just been pushed down the drain of the distribution pipe. There were like three distribution companies uh, that, one, I think one was York. Um, one was definitely York, and they're out of business now. Sinequanon, 
might have been Maverick, a few others. These companies made like millions and millions of dollars in like two or three years. But what they were basically doing was they would acquire a movie, let's say, that was shot for $5,000. And then they would hire, and this is what happened with Chocolate City, by the way, which was the first movie we did. So this is how I know. We did that film for $10,000. Cinequana and bought the movie. We go to Blockbuster to go buy the movie. We told all our parents, everybody's rushing together. This is a family outing, so you know how it is. Family reunion, there's like 30 people coming with me to the Blockbuster to see Greg's Chocolate City. Yes, we're going to see Chocolate City. So we go inside the video store, and we pull the box up, and there's nobody that we know on the cover of the box. Cinequana has gone and hired models to basically be on the cover of the box. And they have them in, you know, college outfits, smiling, and I mean, just you know, like you know, the poses that you see, like an Emory Crumbie Finch ad, basically. And we're like, what is this? So, a lot of these companies made a lot of money doing that from like '99 to maybe like about 2000 and let's say 2005. And then what happened was the market, the audience, the people that go and buy, started getting wind of this and saying, wait a minute. What are these movies? I don't know if you go to the video store, you've seen it before. The, the, the thought process is, at least this was it, what, it, what it was like in 2001. When a person goes to the video store, they typically buy two, to th they rent two to three videos. One video is like their real big, big blockbuster movie, or that big romance movie. One is something that they see a star in that they like. And the third one is something that connects with them. So the niche film began to make a lot of money on DVD. So if, you were, if it was black, if it had a black face on it, you wanted that particular movie. You know, if it was something that was more youth oriented for the kids, let me get this for my kids. You know, and those smaller budget movies began to make a lot of money, but then a lot of those movies that were niche, I mean, every kind of niche from faith-based to, to, um, you know, to other alternative lifestyles, all those movies, a lot of them, unfortunately, that were getting pushed by a lot of those smaller distribution companies weren't good. You know what I mean? Were not good at all. And, and, you know, and it just wasn't. And so at the end of the day, the audience began to say, I don't want them. And that kind of destroyed that a little bit. So now when you go out to try to distribute a film on DVD, people are saying you have to have at least a B to, a B to C level TV star to be in the movie. They want a star in it. Now take it, who, I mean, that's still expensive, you know, a B or C level TV star is going to cost you a lot of money if you're trying to make a movie on DVD and you want to spend $250,000 to maybe $400,000, this actor is going to take, you know, a hundred and something of that money out of your budget. It's really going to affect the, the, the movie. You're stuck with this actor, you know, that's, that's on Bold and the Beautiful or whatever, and now you're like, what the hell is going on? So basically, and that happened to me, so I'm just being, that literally has happened to us already. That's one of the ones that was up here. But, you know, I did it. Hey, we did it, but we learned from it. So basically what, what, I, what, I, what I'm saying to you is there are different ways. People are obviously going to say the Internet, webisodes. I think that that is going to be something big. I can't fully say how long I think it's going to take until it happens, until it manifests and becomes you know, this really financial viable thing for a whole movie. You know, we're, we're going to be doing webisodes with a couple of telephone providers where we're going to send like kids doing stand-up comedy. 
We have like different little things like that. But those are like little snippets, you know what I mean? That's like two or three minute type things that people can pay and download. But for whole movies, even though you can go on the internet and see that, I think Netflix does it, it's still not yet the big thing. So you're looking at theatrical and DVD. DVD really being the king, because DVD is where you make your money nowadays. You can, you'd be glad if you can break even in the, in the theaters, because nobody's making money theatrically now, really, you know, in the end of the day, to be honest with you, if it's not for those big tentpole movies, the tentpoles save the, 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 the chain, you know what I mean? If it wasn't for the Spider-Mans and the um, Pirates of Caribbean, those movies carry the, the weight. Um, what a lot of people say is the bottom fell out of Hollywood, but really the middle fell out of Hollywood because Hollywood does not want to make the, the $20 million to $35 million movie anymore. Either they want to make it way below $5 million, or they want to be 80 and, and, and $100 million, $200 million. And so this middle ground is, is gone. And a lot of that happened because Hollywood stopped producing social commentary films. You look back like in the 70s, you know, when the greater tours of our time, you know, Altman, Spielberg, blah, 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 you know, Scorsese, on and on and on, that were able to make social commentary because the studios were so screwed up at that point, TV was effing them up, you know what I mean? TV was kicking everything, you know, holy, holy crap, out of the studio system for 15 years. And so they said, okay, well, we're going to let y'all do whatever you want to do. And so they went off and made all kinds of great movies, and, and we love them today, to, 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 to this day. But then when 1981 got here, they were like, uh-uh, we're going back to our formulas. And you all sit over here and figure, figure it out. You see what I'm saying? And we're kind of going through a second wave of that again. And I say, like, I'm a child of the kids right after that, because my generation's version and a lot of our generation's version is uh, Tarantino and you know all those guys that came out. Now the same thing is happening to us. You know the industry's like, no, we want it back. And so now you have to find inventive ways, new ways to basically break your movies out. Here you go. Cool. Um, sounds to me from what you've said, like you had some trouble on Stomp the Yard dealing with studios. Can you kind of elaborate on that and talk about losing yeah. creative control? Do they hire you know another what? writer? It was, you know what, I was, this is what, what ended up happening with that film. But well, first of all, we came in, I think the first mindset was, this is a, a, this is a dance movie, okay? So then there's rules in Hollywood to every movie. There's, okay, you know, there's rules to a horror movie. There's rules to a romantic comedy. So then there's rules to a dance movie that hark all the way back, you know, to Singing in the Rain and all this, movies from that all the way to... Flash dance and Footloose and whatever. And so the first thing was that, well, Stomp the Yard was about the culture of stepping. So it's, it's more than just some people getting up and dancing around, you know, shaking their tail feather. This is about, you know, the history of these fraternities and how this culture and this rites of passage that these boys become men, that these girls become women in this process, you know. And so initially, that was a, a, you know, a deflection because the thought was, oh, wait a minute, we just made umpteen money off of Save the Last Dance and bring it on and all this stuff. And from my market research, 
these step shows that are going on around the country are huge and music video directors are using real fraternities stepping in their movies and you know Bill Clinton has them stepping at the inauguration and they just stepped at the Olympics so the thought was we want that because it's commercial but we want you to follow these guideposts so what we had to end up doing which was the longest time was we always do what we call edutainment and we don't we have to do that at our very first level. Well, a lot of people do edutainment once they get to the audience level. We have to do it with a lot of movies where we decided to do it from the very beginning, at the studio level. So we began to bring in the fraternity members there. We began to bring in leaders who were a part of these organizations. We had people write in letters like that they thought, the people that they would respect, like Alicia Keys, hip hop people, or to Aretha Franklin, who was a member of one. So they, they would say, well, wait a minute, there's this other level of validity. And that's when they began to kind of say, okay, here's more freedom. Here's more freedom in, in, in the storytelling. But we had to do that at first, and that was, was kind of like a journey to get to that place. Another thing that we had to decide to do was, we decided, there's a way to tell social commentary without hitting people over the head. There's a way to tell these things in stories. So if you see in Stomp the Yard, for instance, there's a scene where you, you realize that these great historical leaders, these civil rights leaders, were members of these organizations. It's when DJ's character goes into, he's at Truth Hall, goes into the, um, the architectural uh, building. He thinks he's like in this, this you know, this this beautiful architectural building, and he realizes, wait a minute, I'm in, you know, Heritage Hall. And Heritage Hall is, is this place that talks about the fraternities and sororities in, in their world. And he sees it and, it, and it blows his mind. Well, it was an art for the character, but for us, it was a social statement at the same time. So we have to find, in our movies, we try to find ways to let those be one and the same, so that people won't think you're putting something in there that they want to pull out. If you make it so cohesive to the story, then you know a studio exec is not going to say, uh, nobody really wants to see that part. You know? uh, for instance, one scene in Stomp the Yard, uh, which a lot of people like, a lot of women call in and say, woo, they look good. The guys are on the top of this mountain, and they had their shirts off, and they're all cut up and, and everything. That was me, of course. No, I'm joking. But anyway, they're on this mountain. And what a lot of people don't know, but once, once the movie was shot, we told everybody that that mountain was Stone Mountain. Now, of course, Stone Mountain is where Ku Klux Klan was founded, and many people were hung and died. And the whole idea was to have these guys on this mountain with their shirts off and saying, this is the new America. We are unified. We are free. We are powerful. We're strong, intelligent, educated. We're on this mountain, and now this mountain is mean something different. Do you see what I mean? Now in the movie, some people just see it and they see these guys running up the mountain and oh, they look sexy and great. But then when they did the interviews, Chris Brown and Neo and all these artists can tell that story. So now kids on MTV get two educations. Now people that listen to the, to the hottest hip hop or pop music radio station who will listen to Christina Aguilera and Justin Timberlake, when they hear the interview, they have another message that's told to them. And then that way, it's integrated into the story without you saying, message, 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 you know? So that's kind of... Is this all in the original screenplay, or did the studio really do a lot of changes? Well, actually, it took us, we had to go, well, I'm going to tell you the whole story. We had a director, that director 
Barton the writer, that director and writer got let go. I mean, it was a lot of things that went on with the movie before it ultimately was what it was. But in the end of the day, the things that we most wanted in there were finally in the final draft. Now, in the middle of there, they were gone a lot of times, or they were there in different ways. Do you know what I mean? But ultimately, when the movie was said and done, they were there, which was basically what we knew we were going to fight for the most was in this journey, by the time this film is out, let's find a way to educate people. Because if you try to just battle the system, a lot of times it won't work. But if you try to educate the system, then they'll realize the value of it. Or if you try to find ways to tell the story and integrate it in there where it's not so pointed, then you can also be able to tell those, those messages. How, how did you maintain that leverage? I mean, did you sell them the script and then? Well, this is what ended up happening. This, this movie right here, interestingly enough, will be my first movie where I'm hired just as a writer. Every movie up to this point was a package deal. Everything was a negative pickup. So when Stomp the Yard at first was going to be a negative pickup, but when it became a studio film, the project was already owned by the company. So what, what the Sony ended up inevitably did was this company is hired to make this project that they own. Now, in the end of the day, Sony owns all of it once the movie's made. But what was good was, in the beginning of the process, it was a sense of, we're hiring you all to make this movie that you all have created. Do you see what I'm saying? So they still had control, don't get me wrong. But at least it wasn't something where you sell a script, development execs go through it, and all this kind of stuff happens. Then they try to find a producer. Then they hire a director. A lot of things came from inside. But I will say that was the first movie where the director didn't come from inside at the end of the day because everything before that was directors that were our classmates, producers that were our classmates, writers. So we were all people that we knew. That was the first film where that wasn't the case. Yes? Actually, my question specifically is about the marketing and the target marketing for African-American film right now. Yeah. You cut way back to 1971, you have Melvin Van Peebles doing basically what you're doing right now in a grassroots effort going from city to city. He courted the Black Panthers at one point, even though the biopic says different. It was like the other way around. But he yeah. courted the Black Panthers to spread the word of his film. So now you go 35 years in the future, you look at Tyler Perry. Yes. Essentially, in the amount of budget that he is spending as far as advertising, you turn on BET, there's a commercial for a Tyler Perry movie pretty much about every 32 seconds. Turn on MTV maybe once every four or five hours. As an African-American independent filmmaker, I mean, are you conceding middle America in some ways, or does it just make sense for you to market your film specifically to the African-American community and just say, well, hopefully word of mouth extends out of there like it did with Sweetback and pull itself into middle America? When you go around doing grassroots efforts, how widespread is it? Do you primarily stay within African-American communities? Or well, the, the trick that happens when you're doing a, a grassroots marketing is that because when you're doing grassroots, your, your money's limited, you have to almost focus all of it on that initial niche. And then when the success begins to come, then expand from there because you don't have a mo enough money to widen it. Now with Stomp the Yard, obviously, that movie crossed over the opening weekend. It made $28 million you know, opening weekend. So it crossed over immediately. You know what I mean? But that was a different movie because it was promoted everywhere. Yes, it was a, a quote-unquote urban movie, but they marketed it on every kind of station, from soap operas in the daytime to MTV. You know, everybody was, so that was different, but that, of course, that's a movie where 
you know, the film cost close to $15 million, but the studio spent at least that much, if not more, on the marketing and advertising for the movie, where you're doing the smaller films that we used to do and the ones that, that we're, we're doing, the ones that we do over here, those budgets are much smaller in terms of how much money we have to market initially. So we almost have to target that audience. So like with the, with the sport film with Bev Kearney, it's going to hit the sports enthusiasts, then lean African-American and lean women. Do you see what I mean? So to be all three of those together would be the kind of place that we hit because it, has, it touches those places. Another story like this um, where this is geared toward, it, it'll, it'll hit the kids, well, kids of a certain age and teenagers, uh, the hip-hop crowd, but then it also hit Latins because he's a famous Latin hero. So that would be that one would hit that way. Do you see what I mean? So it kind of all depends on the movie itself in terms of what it will hit if it, if it has to be that grassroots. And then as it expands, the hope is that with the money that comes back, we begin to hit other markets. Which one first? Oh, when you started out, you mentioned the big changes in the in the industry, and you yep. listed off a bunch of companies, et cetera. Yeah. When a lot of us hear about big changes in the industry, we hear about Final Cut Pro, yeah. inexpensive HD cameras, yeah. and the quote democratization, if you will, of production. Although, okay. So, but you haven't mentioned any of that. And I'm not yeah. saying you should. Yeah. But I'm just, I'm not saying it's even important necessarily. Yeah. But I was wondering, do you feel, does that have anything to do with, with the world that you're living in or you that know, you see? You know what it is? I think that what happened to us, and I say my classmates and I, that's probably different than all the other filmmakers that we meet, is because we tried the craziest thing that you could try, which is to distribute a movie on your own, you began to get a different type of knowledge about what the industry really is about. Do you know what I mean? And so our perspective is a little bit different because we'll have conversations with, with writers, especially during the writer's strike, because I was, you know, I was striking and then going against the strike, so I was kind of real confused. So then, I, you know, because I'm producing and, and writing, but I'm sitting out with a lot of my friends and, I, and I'm thinking, we're, we're, they're talking and I'm thinking, there's all these things that they're not even thinking about. You know what I mean? And yes, DV, you know, digital video, and that's incredibly important. That's going to change the way the, you know, film is seen at, at some point. And yes, the internet is going to be important, you know, also, and all these other kind of things they are. But when it's really about, exhibition because it's kind of like I can have a, a painting but if I want to really really showcase this painting I got to get it in a gallery and if I got to open my own gallery I got to get it so people can see it and so we learn those kind of things that we would have never thought about because most artists I talk to all they want to do is sell their spec script that is their biggest goal you know what I mean or most of the director friends I know they want to either get either the next hot video or they want to get that they want to get an episodic you know show on ER where they can be one of the main directors or they want to get their film made but none of them are thinking about all the, the intricacies that they're going with actually getting a movie out there so when I go into a distribution meeting usually it's shocking because we end up having a conversation that's not even about the movie we begin to talk about market trends 
and distribution changes and output deals and, and us knowing certain bookers that they use and, and those kind of things that they typically wouldn't even talk about. And so I think that's just what made it different for us is because we kind of came in it different and because we didn't, if, if we would have had the knowledge, we would have never did what we did. And I'm glad that we weren't, I mean, I'm so glad we, we didn't know. Because when we came out of it, we thought, what did we just do? Why did we do that? Exactly. See, she even agrees with me. Amen. But, um, <laughs> see, I like that. Amen. Okay, so, but yeah, so that's what, that's what ended up <laughs> happening, you know, with us. It's the same um, thing that, I think that's what makes, it, makes me think about different things. And sometimes it's, it's good, and then sometimes I, I wish that I could just think about the spec. Do you know what I mean? I wish my mind could just think about that. My mind goes into these other things. You know, That's the whole reason why I really wanted to even do this movie, because I wanted to do a movie where, for once, I didn't have anything to do with the producing of it at all. I wasn't connected to the production company. I, was, I just wanted to see, what does it feel like to write, to, to write a movie where you're not thinking about Okay, now what are we going? What are we going to do? Like, are we going to get this out? Okay, now well, you know you're not thinking about all those things at the same time. So it's going to hopefully be refreshing for me. But then again, I got in there and they already got my name on the freaking thing already from the minor stomp. The y'all's like, I can't freaking believe it. But so so I'm I'm hoping that they allow me not to think about those things. What would it feel like for you to distribute someone else's movie since you understand the distribution? So well, you know what we did that with the Master P films, a couple of those movies and. It was, it, was, it was good, we did enjoy it. We realized, of course, that we were basically being hired to up the DVD sales because the goal was get this movie in the theaters, let it do, it didn't have to do great. We wanted it to be great, but we didn't know that really the studio just wanted it in there more than anything. You know, they wanted us to push it so the world knew about it so that in about five or six weeks they could bring it on DVD and they could get, you know, three times the shelf space. Because if your movie goes straight to DVD, unless it's a sequel, which you know that's the new monster that is killing me softly, is so many sequels to everything, you know? It's Dukes of Hazard 3, 4, 5, New Jack City 2, Bring It On 11, you know, everything's, you know, Every twa twa uh quadruple twa everything. I mean, even my movies got so many twas. I was like, so many twas. Who? How many people are in the bed with me now? Wait a minute. How many? You know, seven, eight people in this bed. But so that has kind of happened to you know happened to the DVD world. So, but if your movie does not have those things, you're gonna have one box. You know what I mean? One box. You've seen it before. Then you see these other movies that are like, whatever part part five that never went to the theater but has some unknown person playing the, you know, the Demi Moore role or the Julia Roberts role, and it's all, it's like two rows or three, four rows of it. So, which, you know, that's kind of what is, was, was happening, you know, and, and your, your mind thinks about it, and that's kind of like the, the, the thing, that I guess, that's kind of fortunate and un unfortunate. You're welcome. Yes, sir? Yeah, how do the HBOs and the Showtime sort of factor into the independent world? Do you know, I, I really like them. I really, I like them, but then they have their own rules, too, because it's a certain type of highbrow. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, I don't say it's highbrow just to be highbrow, but it's a certain type. And then there's a game to that, too, because the key is you have to key in to what particular producer you want to take the project in 
to HBO because that particular producer they'll look at in a certain way and then they'll say yes to this movie, which is what we initially were trying to do even with Bev Kearney because the thought was HBO Real Sports, you know, boom, I mean, they're, they're the same company, let's go there. So we first went on our own and the vision was kind of different than what we, what we thought. They didn't want to make her a man at least, but I mean, it was still different than what we in, initially had thought about. So what we, what we realized later, because we keep learning stuff, with, the whole time we're learning, all the time, was that with the right producer to co-venture with us, it would have worked. Um, to kind of give you an example of this, we just had a film that went out, um, and thank God it got picked up. It took about two weeks to get it. this movie picked up and, um, by one of the studios. But this was the first time I had done one where you took a project and you go out. So I'm kind of going backwards in a way because I, I've never done some of the stuff that, that I'm doing now that a lot of people did when they, with their very first movie. So basically, we had a, a script. We were like, we want to produce this with these studios. So I named all those studios out to you. Well, we first went to producers who either had deals at those studios or who had relationships at those studios. And then they took it in because them saying this is good is stronger than me saying it's good. Or like the fact that this person did a movie kind of like this at this same studio made them feel better about doing the movie. And in the end of the day, it's interesting enough that the, the person that ended up picking it up happened to be the company that made a movie that was most closest to the movie that we were doing. And that producing, production company is Step Up, and the studio is Universal. And the movie that we're doing is kind of like a dance genre film. And it's interesting that it took, out of all the studios, it took the production company that did a movie like that to be the one that the studio finally said yes to them. But, um, so that's kind of some stuff that we go through. Yes. All right. So I'm interested in uh, yeah. how you look to other parts, of, other industries to get ideas. Like yeah. I saw when when you decided to license to Sony, yeah. it reminded me of like No Limit holding onto their masters, you got and it. then just like a few years later, you're doing a project with Master P. It was the same. You, you, you know, got it's like you, it's this back and forth it. thing. You right? saw it. You, that's you got you actually. That's what we. Okay, in the end of the day, <laughs> you got it. I mean, I, I love this because <laughs> you're right. You're the one. You, you're basically saying we did. We, we looked at every, we are big in, um, what does Tony Robbins call it? I don't even know the name of the word. But he used this word about this in his stuff about basically emulating or copying things that work for somebody. That's really what we did. You know what I mean? Because, and what I think made sense for us which probably didn't make as much sense. And I probably was the one that it made least sense to because I was the one that was kind of like really wanted to be an artist where a lot of people, other ones were engineers and everything like that. They saw it very analytically. Do you know what I mean? They saw it as a science to this. We want to get from here to here. So all the people that were around me were those kind of minded people. So their thought was, this is what worked. You know what I mean? It may not work exactly the way for us, but if we pull these elements together, we can kind of get some level of success in the way they did and maybe add some of our own elements into it. And that's exactly what we've basically done. We basically studied Empire of Their Own, took a little Oscar Michaud, took a little Motown and Elvis Presley, took a little bit of Master P and the hip hop artists, 
said, Let's, we're, we're going to keep our masters the same way they did. It's the, it's the same thing. We, and that's literally what we did. And then that's kind of what made us want to see Master P. We all had like Master P dolls, by the way, which we thought was so cool. So we signed them once um, we made the movie. But yeah, that's what we did. We, we studied. Then we studied how Limp Biscuit was able to, to get control, keep control of his own company and kind of move up the echelon in the studio system, which we kind of thought we wanted to do. And I think we changed our mind because movies and music aren't that similar. It's not that easy to actually own your company and then move up because we, we had to say, wait a minute, let's stop and see what didn't work for the Weinsteins. They basically were going to try to do that. They sold it to Disney. And the thought was, one day we could almost be the president of Disney. But instead, they were like, we got to get up out of here. They're kicking us out. So we said, once you, know, once you sell it, you, know, it's, you, you could potentially lose everything. So we decided not to try that route. But that's what we did. We study people's strategies and kind of flip them up. We call it the remix. Well, so there's, we, just in the last few months, the people in music are trying something new. Yeah. And so there was like Radiohead had all this success yes, with yes. these sliding scale kind uh -huh. of payment systems. And there's right. like a bunch of other experiments. Do you see anything inside there in that kind of cloud of experiments? That you know what? Work? We want to do something like that. We are, we are wondering how to kind of make it work. We probably thought if we do some DVD-type releases, because our, our thought was this. We said, let, let's do two things. And this has kind of been our conversation piece. Let's continue to try to make the films that are over a million dollars. And now let's try to also get control again. Because some of these ones over a million dollars, either we're going to have the scenario like I did with the private investor you know, who tried to take it over or his friend did, or whoever she was, or whatever, love or whatever. Anyway, God help me. But uh, that's the truth. So, so uh, basically, either that will happen, or if it's a studio movie, the studio will take it over. So how can we make it small enough where we can still kind of control it? So I thought was, let's go back, and let's do some of these $500,000 ones. And let's try to independently do those on DVD, and let's try to find different avenues to get those out. So one of the processes that we're trying is, because we had success with the one with, with um, Mike Jones, we went back to those labels and said, well, wait a minute. You have your own venue. Can we bring movies through your venue to video stores and to record stores without it having to have a music artist in it? So at first they thought, I don't know about that. And then they began to say, well, I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Why not? So that's what we're, we're, we're trying now. Our one hurdle is the reality that you got to have some level of a talent in the movie. Do you know what I mean? And it kind of then affects the artistry that we're, we're trying to do. So there's this weird balancing act, even in doing that, because the budget's so low that you can't get the big enough artistic star that you want, because a lot of them don't go low anymore. I'm just saying they used to. but now, a lot of them aren't going as low as they used to. You got Parker Posey, I mean, got her own sitcom coming on ABC. You know, you got Lily Taylor with her own show on Lifetime. You know what I'm saying? These, these were our art house kings and queens, you know? So with, with, that, with that happening, now you have to kind of take some other leveled actors to kind of do this. And that's kind of where we are. We have a, um, a project that we're trying to do that's basically about paternity tests. And... Um, yeah, you know, hey, don't, don't, hey, don't act so quiet. Yeah, I know what they are, right? I mean, yeah, you watched uh, Maury Povich. You are not the father, 99%, not the father. But no, we're, we're trying to, uh, 
we're gonna, that's the first one that we're, we're going to try that with. So, you know, I'll keep our fingers crossed and let's see what happens um, with it. But that's going to be the first one that we do it at like 500,000 level and kind of go back and see if we can do it on our own or we're going to beat each other up along the way. I have a question. Um, sure. You have a really dynamic personality. Yeah. When you initially began, did was it you who made the actual pitch? Did you have somebody else with you who kind of was able to talk to people when you first began the first project before? Well, the, well, let's see. Uh, what you mean is you mean the first one you did in school or the yeah. one? Uh, well, not in school. It, was, it wasn't even my idea to to do the club. Yeah. It was Rob's idea. One of my classmates. It was his idea. He and a, and a girl named Kelsey Scott. It was the, their idea to kind of do the club. I kind of I wanted to to be in, in theater and film. So, but what was great about them, like I said, because they were thinking from you know this other standpoint of you know engineers and they were just kind of in business and economic majors and stuff. They were kind of seeing it differently, social science majors. So I was kind of coming into it in a different way than them. So for a while, we kind of had like these opposing thoughts, but then it kind of all started to mesh together. But, I, but once that movie was done, what I was really good at was like going out to the distributors and pitching them on why they should put Twine in their theaters. I was really good with going to the radio stations and, and getting them to basically do you know, our, our music buy for a very low price. You know, I was able to kind of think of unique ways to get people to do things, uh, we would have you know people wearing our, our we'll do deals with a, a, um, a promoter. Let's say we find out who's the hottest promoter in this city. Well, at the end of the day, as you all know, there's going to be a party every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Everyone, you know, every metro, you know, metropolitan city is going to have a party. There's a promoter. It doesn't even matter. So what I thought was, we're going to give you twa stuff or whatever kind of thing that we're selling that at that time. You can make this the official after party for the movie. We're going to have signatures by the people. We're going to have Miss USA who's in the movie in her, in her bikini calendar giving away. We're going to do all the kind of things we can do and it's your party. We don't want to make nothing off the door. We don't want any of the drink off the money, off the drinks. It's yours. But we want this thing plastered everywhere with Twa on it. We want the, the guys behind the bar. We want the girls that's selling the drinks. Everyone in Twa stuff tonight. When you go in here, we want Twa playing Every two music videos, we want a, want a Twa trailer playing on all the TV screens. And that's what we began to do. And we created like our own promotion vehicle that way. So I was really good at that kind of stuff. And you're not a business major? You weren't? Agricultural business. So I mean, but that's not what I wanted to do. But I mean, I was kind of like, you know, you know, okay, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, <laughs> let me tell you something. So you, I ain't got to even say my father, my father's a, is a mathematics professor. He teaches actuarial science. Um, he's the dean of mathematics uh, for about 30 years. He's just re um, in semi-retirement from Florida and them. He taught at FAMU and FSU. And so he wasn't, this was very weird for him, everything I've done. But I mean, he likes it better now, but it still continues to be a little odd for him, you know. Well, I really appreciate you all coming out. And, and uh, thank you so much. And keep coming up with great ideas. Thank you so much.